This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. I do believe that had we made it at Paramount, even if they took it back and made it, the cards would not have fallen into place the way they did. That's producer Mark Gordon picking up where we left off last week. After a year or so of studio development, and despite the enthusiasm of executive Don Granger, the powers that be at Paramount Pictures have hit the brakes on speed and put it into turnaround. Gordon gets screenwriter Graham Yost's project back and seeks life for it elsewhere. Here's co-producer Allison Lyon describing the mood. I think for Mark and me, it was still that same tenacity of, okay, well, let's take it back out and find another place to make it. And if I remember correctly, I think every studio turned it down again, except for Fox. (laughs) And, you know, once again, it took one person with passion to get it through. Here's where I'm going to introduce one of the more colorful personalities on this podcast. Or maybe he's just colorful to me. I just love the way he talks. His name is Jorge Saralegui, and in the early 90s, he was a junior executive within a brand new regime at 20th Century Fox. But I should probably set this scene a little bit before we get to him. Okay, stay with me here. In November of 1992, two guys, Joe Roth and Roger Birnbaum, the respective chairman and production president of 20th Century Fox, the heads of the company, wildly successful guys in the movie business, left the studio to form a new production company together. In their wake, News Corporation CEO Rupert Murdoch, who owned Fox, brought in TV executive Peter Chernin to run the company's film business. Chernin had been the head of Fox Broadcasting during a boom time for the network, when the lineup included groundbreaking programs like The Arsenio Hall Show, The Simpsons, Alien Nation, Cops, Beverly Hills 90210, and Melrose Place. Now, he actually comes in with a mandate to keep a lid on costs while at the same time attracting top talent to the studio. Remember all of that, okay? So this guy is going to come in and run Fox's film business. What's going on in Fox's film business? Well, not a lot. In 1992, they're sort of living in the afterglow of stuff like the Home Alone and Die Hard movies, while still enjoying the occasional star-driven hit like Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts. Behind her happiness... You okay? I'm gonna be. ...is a past she can never forget. Or the very next year, Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams. Miss Hillen? The water's boiling. Hello! Ah! Oh, I'm sorry to frighten you, dear. I must look like a yeti in this getup. I should also add that as Chernin comes in, the studio's executive vice president, Tom Jacobson, bridges the gap between the two regimes and takes over as production president. These names will matter. Okay, you still with me? Now, let's get back to that junior executive, Jorge Saralegui. Here he is with a little more context on this turbulent time for Fox and how Speed ended up on his desk in the first place. So, the studio isn't 
it's it's never been a a big Hollywood studio. It's never been a, a star laden. In fact, it's been the opposite of that star laden Hollywood studio, right? Almost like if you think of Warner Brothers as one kind of studio, Fox would have been like the the you know the opposite. And 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 so those guys wanted to well do something, right? I mean, get going and have some kind of success. But the, but all you do is sit there and wait for things to come in because it's not like the studio has relationships with. Clint Eastwood or something, you know what I mean? Who's going to crank out his own, but okay. So I was uh, a junior executive. I'd been one for like a, I don't know, a year and a half or something. Uh, and uh, I only had one project that didn't even have a writer on it. So in other words, I had a project that had a producer on it. Had no money, Zero money had been spent on my one project. Otherwise, I just assisted the vice presidents. Here's screenwriter Graham Yost, first time hearing from him this week. Specifically, it was a project called Hamlet, but a pig that's put into witness protection, right? So I, he's asking agents, I need someone who's funny and who also can do some action. And my agent said, well, here's this script, um, because he's, he's a comedy writer, but he also wrote this. I honestly forget now which one it was. I have a feeling it's Hamlet, but there was a movie called Turner and Hooch and a movie called Hamlet. One was about a dog and one was about a pig, both in the witness relocation program. And I had, I think I had Hamlet actually, except it was a dog at the time. It got turned into a pig. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, anyway, oh no, no, no. I had a dog one and it was a third one and they folded it into Hamlet when they. This is all I mean by colorful, by the way, just the studio ease cracks me up. So I'm looking for a comedy writer to write the dog movie right and so i'm getting a lot of writing samples and i get a comedy writing sample from graham yost's agent uh because he was working on some tv show that i guess is a comedy i don't even remember what it was um and so i read it it's fine it's funny whatever and then she says there's some action in your dog you know in your police dog movie okay and there's not a lot but yeah there is some he says so I want to show you the, the kind of action that Graham can write. And by the way, if you happen to like it, it's in Turnaround of Paramount. So Jorge read it and then said to my agent, well, what's going on with this? But I didn't get the job on Hamlet. First of all, I can't believe that I read it. it I mean, think about it. It's kind of like, who gives a shit? If he's good at action, I'm trying to find a comedy writer for a police dog, you know, for police dog comedy, right? But because I was, starting out probably um or because i was just vaguely curious about the beginning i actually did read it or i started to read it and while it's very different from the movie in in detail the broad strokes are the same especially for the first two-thirds i.e the beginning is the elevator sequence and then comes the bus stuff so i start reading it and the elevator sequence is good and it's tense but it's it's long in a good way. It's almost kind of like, huh, he's not writing this first act like most people do. He's just keeping you in the scene, and it's really tense. You know what I mean? Like, you're used to reading a million scripts. Like, like I came from being a, a reader, right? Okay, I was promoted from reader to, to junior executive. So my whole thing was reading scripts, and so you're used to, like, a certain structure, right? And the first act just felt off in, in that way, but off in a good way. And, and so it just kind of caught my eye, but it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, this is worth buying or anything. It was just, 
interesting. I keep reading, not knowing where it's going. And, you know, there's a bomb on a bus and it'll blow up if it's under 50 miles an hour. And my thought about that right at the moment is, well, how are you going to keep that going beyond five or 10 pages? That's, that was my first thought as, it, I mean, you know, as I read it. Okay. And so, but I'm curious and I read it and it's, it's good. You know, the next five pages, 10 pages, it's still going, it's still going. And after a while I go, if this thing hasn't, lo- you know, it's, if that bus is still going by like page 70, then I'm in because I know that whatever happens afterwards, it can be fixed or finessed or whatever. Um, you know, and I couldn't believe it that as crazy as it was, I was buying it. All right. Meanwhile, there are other gears in motion. Here is what producer Mark Gordon recalls of the submission process from his end. I didn't know the Jorge story. My recollection, and it's pr- they're probably both correct, is that I submitted the script to Tom Jacobson at the time, the president of the studio. and um, and he read it and said, I'm interested. Um, I didn't really know Jorge until after we sold the project. It's just that things happen to come together in a, you know, in kind of an interesting way. So Jorge puts the script on what they call the weekend read. It's a stack of scripts that all the various studio execs take home with them to read or, more likely, scan over the weekend. The next week, he got some good responses, including from a young Chris Melodondri. Today, Melodondri is the head of Illumination Entertainment, the animation company responsible for the Despicable Me franchise, and most recently, my kid's first ever movie theater experience, the Super Mario Brothers movie. At the time, like Jorge, Melodondri was a young studio executive at Fox. And he was Mark Gordon's ex-partner by coincidence, but he was also a very straight-up guy, so if he said he liked it, he meant it, and he, and he did like it. But a lot of other people, not a lot, but, but two or three others were like really negative about it. And part of that, I took it personally in the sense of like, you know, I'm a junior executive, fuck you kind of thing. Like, don't, you know what I mean? Like your action scripts aren't good enough or whatever. Okay. Um, and, uh, and they made a point that I thought was valid, which is kind of like die hard at a bus sounds like a joke. In fact, if you think about it, it sounds a little bit like that Ruth Gordon movie, um, The Big Bus, whatever it was called, which I never saw. But, but that's what it was. I think that that was more like a disaster movie or something, but it was on a bus. Okay, because it's, because it's silly. But Jorge was seeing way past the doubters. He knew there was potential in what he had read on the page. He could already see the movie trailer coming together in his head, selling audiences on the many cool moments that Graham had woven into his action script. And that was his argument to everyone at the studio as they waited for Chernin to chime in. But then we get to, to speed on the weekend read, and, and he says, okay, so what's this? And Tom Jacobson says, well, it's a blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, it's Jorge's, and so he says, and so he asked me to talk about it. And so I say, whatever. But I, it's not like I did any kind of like a brilliant, you know, sell job on it. I just said what I thought was strong about it. And he goes, well, what was the cost? And I said, you know, whatever it was, 75000 And he shrugs and goes, buy it. Which is typical Peter Turner, by the way. He was, I mean, there are a lot of good things you can say about him. But one was that he had more courage in that way than the typical executive. Um, he was very good in that, in that way. Um, I mean, he was, he was good in that way in other aspects of speed down, you know, down the line. And he was good in that way 
with, you know, later parts of my career, you know, buying Independence Day, for example, you know, I mean, I brought that in and he just said, I get it. Let's buy it. No matter what, we're going to get this. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. Since we've been talking about him, we should bring in Fox production president Tom Jacobson. Jacobson was the producer of films like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Uncle Buck, and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when he took his Fox post in 1989. Remember, this is the guy who bridged the gap between the two regimes, which I find kind of funny because, if you recall, every studio in town originally said no to speed except Paramount. That included Fox. Now here's Jacobson with a new Fox ready to say yes. Although, to be perfectly fair, I mean, it was a much better script by then after all the development at Paramount and whatnot, so, you know. Anyway, here's Tom. Mark and I had been friends, sort of grew up in the business together. My memory is that we didn't have a lot of action projects in, in the works at the time, for whatever reason. And, um, and we brought the script forward, and, and so it was sort of early in my regime, so Peter was sort of paying attention to, you know, the decisions that were being made by the uh, creative group, and we pitched it. And Peter said, because Peter's a very smart guy, he said, well, let's buy it. We don't we don't have enough of this. We, we need to make some action movies. And so and I just remember that being sort of that overview, being smart about like, we need to make a little of this and a little of that. And, you know, we need to like have a full slate. Now let's back up for a second. Remember Rupert Murdoch's mandate to Chernin about keeping costs low. That's going to be key because nobody under the sun saw this as a tentpole summer blockbuster. Let's get to that truth right now. This was a B-movie at best, something to dump into the spring or August and maybe make a little money on the farther outskirts of summer. Jorge and I both said, we think we should make this. We think it's one of those movies that can be made for a price. Yes, it's got a lot of action in it, uh, but it's not a franchise. And even then, franchises, I mean, Die Hard was already a franchise, but it wasn't. there weren't that many of them. And I don't even know if we called it a program. We just called it, you know, those, often we talked at studios in those days in terms of release and distribution strategy of looking for a single or a double or a triple, right? What's good enough, right? So if you're making, you know, the next Star Wars, you're looking for a home run, right? But if you're making, and this was true of Home Alone too, which I was sort of lucky at a similar situation like that. Like, that's well, a good movie. We're looking for a single or a double because we're making it at a price that a single or double is getting on pace, is getting a hit not an outsized hit. And that's what this was intended as. You know, they, they needed something that was sort of ready to go and didn't cost too much. But it was, you know, it's a reasonably big film, but it, was, but it was in good enough shape that they felt the bones of it were good enough that I think they thought, well, it's ready to go and we need something. I think we got it in like, I don't know, late, you know, like November or December or something. And the plan was for it to be like a $15 million low budget action movie. Back then, 15 isn't as, as low as 15 is now, but it's still, it's still low. And so now it becomes a matter of doing a bunch of rewrites. It's a little hard to get a lot of detail on this early development period at Fox. There is, of course, a major rewrite still to come, but at this point, Graham says Speed just became a much simpler and more driven story. Jorge, meanwhile, pegs the bulk of the changes around the end of Act 2 on, once we're off the bus. Which is notable because, and this is something I'm frankly still trying to nail down in the timeline with 30-year-old faulty memories, but throughout this whole process, Howard Payne isn't a character. In a jaw-dropping third-act twist, Harry Temple, Jack Traven's partner, is revealed as the Mad Bomber. That later ends up not working and is written out of the script, 
And we'll come to that. But again, at this point, I just get the idea that there's a lot of honing going on. So it wasn't like anything was really wrong with it. And it kept getting better. And people kept getting happier with it. Okay. But it was that kind of stuff because the basic story worked. But it was, it was more like, as you put more pressure on it, it would be like, well, how does this, you know, how is this going to happen here? You mean, or how do you pick it up? Or how, so it was more like tightening the tension. As this process is happening, remember, this is active development. There's no green light yet. Everything could go south just like it did at Paramount. But things are progressing, and as the script is being tightened up, they start going through cast lists, imagining how they might package this movie. The first top name on our list was Charlie Keene. Hang on, Tiger Blood was up for speed? You bet. We'll get to the casting of the film and the desperate search for the movie's Jack Traven in due time, but yes, not only was Charlie Sheen up for the role, he was the studio's top choice. Or at least the top choice of the executive tasked with developing the project. At this point, Sheen was coming off of the Top Gun spoof Hot Shots, which was a pretty sizable hit for the studio and had a hotly anticipated sequel around the corner. Seems no matter what I do, I end up hurting someone. He was at the top of, he was at the, top of the list. One of my assistants framed for me, after the movie came out, um, framed for me my kind of like memo to Tom Jacobson uh, titled 10 Reasons to Buy Speed. And one of them was, and we can put Charlie Sheen in the, in the lead role <laughs> because she knew by then how silly the actual, you know, memo looked. Almost everything I said ended up having nothing to do with the movie. Um, but anyway, we wanted a million people who we couldn't get um, for every single role. Well, for, for, all three, for all three big roles and even the fourth role, the Jeff Daniels role. All those roles were incredibly hard to cast. We are, in the meantime, looking at directors. We're making a $15 million action movie. All we want is a serviceable action director. Oh yeah, a director. You kind of need one of those, don't you? We're entering a stage now where things will start to feel a little bit messy, if they don't already, as the studio goes back and forth looking at casting and directing choices, hoping for the right spark on one side of the line or the other. At this point, though, their eyes indeed turn to filmmakers. Who could come in and take the reins on an unusual production like this? Do you play it safe with a journeyman director? After all, you don't want anything controversial here. You're trying to keep costs down, right? Or do you roll the dice on someone with a bold vision, someone who maybe, just maybe, could knock this thing out of the park? Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. As Fox is looking for an actor to say yes, they're also looking for a director. But it's Slim Pickens in the A-list set. Let, let me tell you, I couldn't give this thing away. No director who you would put at the top of any of your lists was interested in doing this movie at all. We'll cut through some of the mythology that has built up around this over the years as the studio has its eye on a few journeyman possibilities, one in particular. And he was the one we were to go with. But there were a few, as you, as you might imagine, like if you're like a B-level action director, then why wouldn't you want to direct a movie that's gonna go? But in the end, on a wing and a prayer, they roll the dice on a cinematographer turned first time director. I think I was totally ready for it. I mean, I've done work on, on, on some really big action movies already, and, and it's really, I know how to handle that part of it. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour.
Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.